in the final stages of our series on amazing grace, amazing grace. Um, I, in an effort to shorten my messages, um, the last installment of this series is going to be cut up into this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, but I hope that you're getting an idea of how amazing God's grace, grace is. And I hope that you're starting to get a window and an insight into the Gospels of Jesus Christ, or the Gospels that was written and the epistles that were written unto the churches. That it, religion has taken what was written to the churches and turned it to point to you, to look to you. And it's a method of trying to not sin anymore. And that is not what the epistles are about at all. Epistle after epistle after epistle are strong warnings to, for the church not to go back to man-made religion, but always constantly keep your eyes on Jesus, constantly trusting in faith in Jesus Christ, always going deeper and deeper into the gospel, the good news of our great salvation. That is what the epistles are declaring over and over again. And the reason why we get it so confused is because we don't realize who we are in that epistle, in the epistles that are written to the church. He writes about sinners and sin and the flesh, and we think that's us. It's not. That's who you used to be. Now, you're no longer in the flesh. You are in the spirit. You have been born again. Your spirit has been united with the very spirit of God. The, Colossians talks about how the whole God had dwells within Jesus Christ. He is a manifestation of God. And he says, and you are in Christ. We have been married to God Almighty. We are part of his family. We have been baptized into God. For all eternity. And you say, how can that be, Chad? God. God himself became a man. Jesus Christ is God. He is a resurrected man seated at the right hand of the Father. Humanity for all eternity has been welded together. It's even greater than welding. Our molecules and neutrons and protons have all got mingled together forever. That is such an amazing truth that you have a father that wanted so desperately to have his children be with him forever, that he was willing to do whatever it took and that was to humble himself and become lower than the angels, to become like fallen man. And he was tempted just like we all are, but without sin. And when the enemy came to take him, he found no guile in him. He had no hook in him. He, he had no claim on him. And he went to the cross as the Lamb of God to redeem all of humanity. That's amazing. See, we, Alicia, during worship, made a statement that the one true God, the one true God, the one true God, and so often you're thinking, one true God, you know, we don't worship false gods. We don't worship Allah or other, other strange gods. I don't care who your God is. It can be the God of atheism and science and man-made wisdom. It can be Allah. It can be spiritualism, Hinduism, all of that. Or it can be the man-made God of, the, of Christian religion. We worship the God Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God Almighty. And when we read scriptures, in the, in, especially in the New Testament, that seem to go tilt, don't look like Jesus, don't sound like 
this God of love and mercy and kindness and compassion and long-suffering, right? He had to be long-suffering to wait to get me into the kingdom. When we read those scriptures, for some reason, because we understand the God of man-made religion, the God of the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we think that that must be how God really is. Instead of eating from the tree of life, eating from Jesus. And so we try to take these hard scriptures and try to, and instead of trying to understand them through the tree of life, we use the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and understand them through man-made religion. What is man-made religion? Man-made religion is any thought pattern of man, that you have to do something to, to please God. You have to do something to be blessed by God. You have to do something for God to receive you. You have to earn your salvation. That's man-made religion, and it started in the Garden of Eden when they wanted to be like God by doing something. And what did they do? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they realized how much they were not like God. And humanity has been trying to climb that ladder ever since, only to find out that it's up against the wrong stinking building. Christianity is not about trying. It's about being. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things, all things, all things have become new. All things. And you're saying, well, this in my life isn't new. Yeah, it is. The Bible says it's new. You just don't believe it. Our problem is not in doing, it's in believing. Right believing always leads to right, right actions. If you believe you're a sinner, if you believe you're a, an adulterer, if you believe you're, you're um, what are some good sins? <laughs> Greedy, uh, vengeful, wrathful, all these things. If, if you believe that that's who you are, guess what you're going to be? Just like that. But I'm here to tell you the good news is that you're a new creation. All that old junk has passed away. Behold, the new and fresh has come. You are just like Jesus in your spirit. And if you believe it, guess what? You'll act like it. You'll act like it. So I gave you guys some homework, and this message will probably go better for those that did the homework. I threw it on, on the realm for you to read um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 through Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13. Because that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Because this is a hard piece of scripture that religion has used against Christ's bride to make her think that when he beats her, it's for her benefit. It's interesting when we put in that terms how horrible it sounds. So we're going to look at today at Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we got to see if this father of ours, if he, if he crushes, crushes his children to make them better. Or if it's actually talking about a father that gets down on his hands and knees when, when his children get in hard times and encourages them encourages them to, to continue in the faith, continues, continues to edify and build them up and, tell, and applauds them to, to keep up to run the race of faith. Too many people read Hebrews chapter 12 in a negative light. If the gospel is called good news, right? Good news. And we're supposed to be proclaiming the gospel how could we possibly proclaim anything that was negative? Common sense stinks, don't it? That's just common sense. If the gospel is good news, and we are called to proclaim, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, how could we ever preach anything that was negative?
So when we read things in Scripture that seem to be negative, what should we do? That's just an indication that we're not understanding what is being said or someone is misleading us. Right? See, I know that the man-made religion, the Christian religion, right now you're saying, well, it can't be all good, Chad. There's God's, God's mean sometimes. Oh, yeah, is love mean? God is love? Then I guess we've got to change the definition of what love is. But, Chad, God has wrath. Yeah, love does have wrath. I taught a great message on it. You should listen to it. The, the wrath of love. God's wrath is against what's, what's destroying humanity, not humanity. Why, why does he have wrath? Because he loves us so much. You ever see a jealous husband? When, Man, I just get a picture of that. Someone taking his family, taking his children, taking his wife, and the wrath that would come on that man. That's our Heavenly Father. Hmm. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we always read it in a negative light. And we've been taught to read it in a negative light. And what it does, it causes fear to enter in, and it causes our hearts to be troubled. All things that Jesus says we weren't to have. When it actually is meant to fill the reader with confidence and bring great encouragement. Like always, context changes everything. Right? A scripture lifted out of context can be a tool of deception and can shipwreck your faith. I mean, I can take any scripture. I can take... Judas went out and hung himself. And then I can turn in the Bible to another scripture that says, go and do likewise. I mean, I mean that's absurd, but truth of the matter is we pull scriptures out of context and they can do great damage. And, and this is a script, one of the scriptures that we've done that to. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 it says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And it goes on to talk. To, to, we're going to look at this. We're going to break this down. But basically... We lift scriptures like this out of context, and we end up with interpretations like this. That we got a Heavenly Father that needs to discipline you to make you like Christ. We have a Heavenly Father that has to do things to you to sanctify you. When the Bible says we have been sanctified. That you are, as Christ is, so are you in this world. So here we have religion again, trying to get you to become something that you already are. So what we end up with is, is terrible things, and we've all heard this type of stuff. God wants you to stop sinning, therefore he'll punish you when you sin, and you must endure that if you are a son because he loves you. And I could understand if they said well, that punishment was a spanking or, you know, or uh, a strong talking to or taking your iPod away or making grounding you off TV or whatever. But it, the punishments that the church says that God does is more like taking your hand and putting it on a hot stove not feeding you for a couple weeks, not giving you a coat in the middle of winter. And actually, it's even worse what the church says that God does to us. And you're going to see that these verses, these words, look these up in your concordance, words like discipline 
and uh, rebuke and all of those, it's more, they're actually educational terms. Teach, to teach, to train up a child. I'm getting ahead of myself. So we think that God wants you to stop sinning. So when you sin, you will be punished. That God's going to punish you because the punishment for sin that Jesus endured wasn't enough. So he's going to punish you. Why? Because he wants you to be more like Christ than I thought we already were. The more, and the more he punishes you for your sin, the more and the more that he's correcting you, it's because he's trying to help you because how much he loves you. But when we see these verses in context, we actually will see that it's saying something like this. Don't throw away your faith because you feel like it's not working, because you are being persecuted. In fact, the persecution is coming because of your faith and reveals that you are a son of God. So let's dive into this, huh? See, there's two great perversions. There's two great perversions. The first perversion that people take by lifting this, these, these scriptures out of context is this. That if you sin, then God has to punish and discipline you. Now, let's just get this straight. I got to say this almost every message, but sin is dumb. Don't be dumb, right? Sin is dumb. If you're at church this morning, you're trying to find a way not to sin, to get out of sin, right? And the good news is you're already out. Most teaching in the Christian church is trying to get people to stop sinning. Did Jesus accomplish anything? Did he? So we have been delivered from sin. So if sin, if we've been delivered from sin, and sin no longer has control over us, the issue isn't a sin problem, it's a believing problem. It's an awakening problem. It's an understanding. There's, there's some of you that's been making excuses for your sin for so long that it's so powerful and it's got you in a stranglehold and I, I just can't stop. You're believing a lie and a lie only has as much power as you believe it. This is... We spend so much time talking about sin. You're not sinners. You're saints. But most of you don't believe that you're saints. So you don't act like a saint. So the first thing is, is that when we sin, then God has to punish you. First of all, sin is its own punishment. The wages of sin is death. Sin is dumb. Don't be dumb. Sin will rob, kill, and destroy. Sin is Jesus. The wage that Jesus paid on the cross wasn't God punishing Jesus for our sin. It was the, the, the wage of sin coming on Jesus. Sin demanded a death. Sin demanded punishment. The enemy demanded someone has to pay for our wrongdoing. And God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That's awesome. The second thing is, is God uses hardships to teach you how to sin less. I guess the Bible and the Holy Spirit isn't enough. God has to use the tools of the devils to get you to be more like Jesus. That hardships come because it's God's way of getting sin out of you. See, they make it all about you, and they make it all about sin, when the gospel is all about Jesus and, and what his redemptive work. Do you see how we've continued to eat from the knowledge of the tree of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you see how we're not eating from the tree of life, which is Jesus Christ? That all of our focus should be on Jesus all the time? 
all the time we should be focusing on Jesus and what he accomplished and who we are in him. This is a, a paradigm shift. See, this kind of teaching that God brings hardship into your life, that God brings punishment into your life. And I'm not saying that sin won't bring hardship. I'm not saying that sin won't bring effects. It will bring effects, but it's not God who's doing it to you. But when we believe this, that God is the one that's doing it to us, we, it opens a door, a wide-open door for the enemy to come in and do whatever he wants because he's convinced you that it's for your good, that God is doing this because he loves you. And he convinces us that the things that the enemy's doing in our life is actually God. And religion helps them. God is good. This isn't just a cliche that we say, God is good. This isn't just a church saying, it's truth. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. See, it's because of your sin that you're sick. God is disciplining you. God made you sick to discipline you and teach you something. This is his discipline. That sounds like a lovely Heavenly Father. Do you know why you're going through a financial hard time? It's because of the sin in your life. You're going through a hard, difficult time in your life, in your finances, because of sin. God is chastising you. God is having to teach you how not to sin. He is allowing sickness, financial difficulty, and hardship because you need to be taught not to sin so much. Sounds like the Ten Commandments to me. Do good, get good. Do bad, get beat. And the Ten Commandments was just a manifestation. It was, it was actually God showing them what the tree of knowledge of good and evil looks like. It was just a further explanation of what man-made religion looks like. And the Ten Commandments, the commandments of God, weren't given to make you righteous and holy. They were given to crush us, to bring us to our knees and say, my God, my God, have mercy on me, a sinner. They were to lead us to the cross. They were to lead us to Jesus. But wait, this deception gets even darker. Not only is God the one doing it to you, some teach, go as far as to teach, that we need, you need to embrace it. You need to embrace it. Embrace the sickness, embrace the poverty, embrace the hardships because it is the Lord's discipline. You see how the enemy works? This religious lie? And you might have not went to the extreme of saying what I just said here, but I guarantee you, every single one, if you haven't done this, you come and talk to me. I'd like to talk to you. Every single person in here has had something negative happen in their life, and you said, I bet you this is happening to me because I I did so-and-so. And And the idea is that God is disciplining you. God is, is bringing hardship on you because of something that you did. I'm not saying that something that you did didn't cause the issue in your life, but in our religious mind, we're thinking God's allowing it, God's doing it, and it has nothing to do with that at all. How could you ever pray in faith to a God that's doing the very thing you're trying to get out of? So let's be clear. These scriptures are not, this is not what these scriptures are saying at all. You cannot use these scriptures to build a doctrine of God's punishment against sinning Christians. And you cannot use these scriptures as a principle for church discipline. If you do, you're perverting them. You're distorting them. And you're taking these scriptures completely out of context. It's all about the context. 
When we look at these scriptures in context, we find out that it's all about enduring persecution that comes because of your faith in the gospel. And you're going to see, again, that, that, that Hebrews is a letter to Christians that were being persecuted by non-believing Gentiles and religious Pharisee Jews. It's an encouragement to stick with your faith solely in Christ and not go back to the easy road of works-based religion. See, we want to do something. When things go bad in your life, you want to do something. You want to fix it, right? Instead of trusting, instead of having faith. What must I do to earn salvation? What must I do? To inherit the kingdom of God. What must I do to have my prayers answered? What must I do? Believe only. Believe only. See, the thing of it is, is if we could do something, if we could fast to get God to answer our prayers, if, if, if that's what it required, then we, had, we could boast. If we have to do something in order to be blessed by God, then it's not of grace, but of works. Right? I mean, it's common sense. The gospel is all about trusting in what Jesus Christ has done, not what you do. This is, this is huge. Every area of your life is trusting in who you are in Christ and what Christ has done through the cross. Not what you must do. This is all about sticking with that faith because there's a tendency. There's a tendency when hardships come, when calamity comes, when persecution comes, to give in and back off your faith in God and try to do something. Go back to works, go back to religion, man made religion. So are we ready? We're going to dive into Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to look at it in context. So to look at it in context, Hebrews chapter 12, we can't start in Hebrews chapter 12. Because these letters, again, I said this before, but for those that might not have heard it before, when the Bible was written, it was one continuous letter. Man put in chapters and verses. They actually put in the punctuation marks. Sometimes if you take a comma out of a sentence, it changes it drastically. So you should always read it with that in mind. Even when you read your Bible, a good translation will have words in italicized. That word that's in italicized was added. It wasn't in the original writings. So man added a word to help to understand the, the, uh, the verse better, the scripture better. So you should always read it with and without that italicized word in there and see if it changes it at all. Because there are some instances that it does change it. One, for instance, is the scripture where Jesus says, if, if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will, he, will, um, uh, get, huh? he will draw all men unto himself. That word men, is not, that's an italicized. That was added by the translators. If you look at the verses just above it, he was talking about judgment. So it really isn't talking about if you lift up Jesus that all men are just going to be drawn, drawn, drawn to Jesus. It's talking about when he is lifted up on the cross, he is going to draw all unto himself, all judgment unto himself. That changes it drastically. Anyways, so we got to look at chapter 11 of Hebrews. And when we look at this in context, what we're going to see is we're going to see two different categories of people who endured persecution of faith, and then we're going to see a third category of people who also endured because of their example, which is us. Three different categories of people. So first you have the category of other sons. And what I mean by other sons, they were sons of God. How are they sons of God? Through faith in the coming Messiah. These are Old Testament saints that had faith 
in God's promise of giving us righteousness apart from the law. These were those that believed, trusted in the coming of the Messiah. And those are found in 11, chapter 11, verse 32 through 12, 1. And we're going to read that. And, I, and, what sh, and what more shall we say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jethia, Jeth, whatever, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. So we like reading this part. These are, these are men that did great exploits, that had faith in the coming Messiah. They were men of faith, and they did great exploits in the, in the Lord. Let's continue. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection, but others, others were tortured, not accepting their release. This is talking about people that could have been released if they would recant it. They could have, they could have been released if they would deny their faith in the Messiah. They were tortured, not accepting the release, so that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonments. I mean, Paul was a great example of this in the New Testament. The mockings, the scourgings, the imprisonments. Why? Why was all that happening to Paul? Why was he struggling? Why does it seem like God has forsaken him? Was it because God was forsaken him? No. It's because he was standing in faith. He would not back away that, that righteousness comes through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He was tearing down those man-made institutions of religion and works-based theology. Mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. When you're having that type of day, <laughs> it's easy to think that God has turned his back on you. But they stayed strong in faith. And we can too. This is what this is all about. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Verse 39, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What was the promise? See, these are people that went through all this before Jesus even showed up on the scene. They just had faith in, in the prophecies of the coming Messiah. See, this isn't new. This war between the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life has been waging ever since Genesis. Where are we? Because they had received the promise because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Verse 1 of chapter 12. We're going into chapter 12 now. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So right here, it goes from people being persecuted. It goes from people staying strong in their faith. It goes to God. There's a better resurrection from them. This world was not worthy for them to be worthy of them. And then it shifts over that they are a great cloud of witnesses. What are they witnessing to? 
They're witnessing to those that are able to stand in faith in the midst of all trials and tribulations and persecutions. There are witness that God is good. Even if they kill this body, guess what? We got a better resurrection. That's what they're witnessing to. They're witnessing that no matter what your life looks right now, stand strong in faith. Continue. Don't lose hope. Believe God. Go all the way. And even in this world, if, if, if it doesn't work out the way you, you hoped it would because of sinners, and we're going to see that in just a second, guess what? you got an, a, a sweet homecoming. See, the other sons before the cross were ones persecuted for their faith, the faith in the coming Messiah and a coming righteousness. They were cut in half. Can you imagine? They were cut in half. They were tortured. They were persecuted. Yet they did not allow themselves to compromise their faith. Do you realize that I can, I can see the, the disciples in the early church that walked with Jesus and seeing him raised from the dead, seeing the holes in, their, in his hands and in his side. I can see them and seeing him taken up into heaven. I can see them laying down their life because they could see that it was true. But these are men that all they had was the word of God. And they hadn't even seen what we have seen. They had fragmented pieces. And we have the whole picture. And they laid down their life. They lived below their means. They went through hardships and persecutions because they believed God. You know, it talks about Moses, that he left the, the riches of, of, of uh, Egypt. He was a prince of Egypt for Christ's sake. He left not because that he, he left because of the promise of the Messiah. He had faith in the coming of a Messiah that was stronger than all the temptations of this world. That's amazing to think about. The Hebrew writer included these cloud of witnesses as an encouragement to, for us to stay strong in the face of persecution, that just because they were facing difficulties, I said this already, because of their faith does not mean that their faith was flawed. How many times have you felt that way? Have you felt that maybe I just don't have enough faith? See, it's all the attack. That's why they come. It comes to test your faith. They're trying to get you to back off on faith. And if he can get you back on, on faith, then your faith is shipwrecked. But if you stay in faith, if you stay in faith, you stay trusting God, if you understand the gospel, if you understand what Jesus Christ has done, that in the midst of trials and tribulations, you can be blessed. There's one, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great book to read. And, and there's one instance in there where a woman of faith was going to be burned at the stake because she was a believer in Jesus Christ. And the church said that if God's grace is sufficient, hold up a finger in the flames. And the Fox's Book of Martyrs writes that the flames quenched her feet and engulfed her. And in the midst of the flames, she didn't hold up one finger. She she held up two fingers. That God's grace was more than enough. We don't realize the men and women that gave their life so that we can have this paper and leather. I heard one person talk about they went to the, the catacombs and they toured the catacombs and on one of the one of the tombs was written, here lays, 
Here lay, I wasn't planning on saying this. So I, here lays my wife and child of two months who gave their life for the glory of God in the Circus Maximus. Are we that way? Do we see that in the midst of persecution that God is good, that he hasn't forsaken us, and it's coming for your faith, not because your faith is flawed? The cloud of witnesses are not people who God punished because they were sinful, right? They were God's people who had uh, persevered in faith despite opposition and hardships. So why, if that's the context, why all of a sudden does it shift over and we start thinking that God is the one that's punishing us, that God is the one that's bringing the hardships, and all of a sudden it's because of our sin, the sin that so easily um, ensnares us. Who were the persecutors? See, that's one of the things. We've got to find out who's persecuting us. The church says it's God. Who were the ones that were sawing people in half? Who were the ones that were torturing? Who were the ones that caused people where they had to live in deserts and holes and go and be wanderers? Who were they? It was those that had the spirit of Antichrist, anti-Messiah. It was the legalistic, the self-righteous. Whether it was the Romans, the uh, Philistines, or the... the uh, Pharisees, the God-haters. You remember Stephen? He was talking about the glory of God and, and the truth of the Messiah, and, and it said that his face shone like an angel's. And it said, did they did it say they seen that and they fell to their knees and they praised God and worshiped God? No, it says that they grind, they're gnashed their teeth. They hated Jesus. They hated the true and living God so much that when they seen his glory, the goodness of God being revealed, radiating through this man, they gnashed their teeth and they began to stone him. In the midst of the stoning, it says that Stephen looked up, the heavens were open, and Stephen looked up and he's seen Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And that is so amazing. So many people don't get it, don't, don't see what's happening there. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. In all the scriptures you ever read, it's Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. You know what happened? He looked up in the heavens, and Jesus was sitting at the right hand of the Father, and Stephen watched Jesus stand up, honoring the first martyr of the church. That's the kind of God we have. You don't think God's grace was in that situation? God's grace was all over that situation. They persecuted the Old Testament saints, the disciples, Paul, even Jesus, and the church, as we'll see. And they're still doing it today. Luckily, they're not in charge. So there's laws against them torturing us here in the United States and killing us. But throughout history, you see whenever man-made religion got in charge, it put a black stain on the church, especially when it got rolled over out of non-Christian religions and got into the church of Christ, so-called. So the first category of people that we see, see in these scriptures are the, uh, man, I thought this was going to be short. The first category of people that we see in these scriptures were um, other sons, sons of the Old Testament that had faith in Jesus Christ. The second one is Jesus, the son, the son of God, who was persecuted for his faith. What faith did Jesus have? 
Let's look. Hebrews 12, chapter 2 and 3. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So it says, don't be entangled with sin, right? In the way that way that so easily ensnares us, trips us up, and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and hath sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus, the Son of also endured persecution. Jesus endured persecution. Jesus himself, God himself went through hard times. God himself felt what it was like to be forsaken. But it says that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Jesus was never forsaken. God, Jesus never lost faith in God. Do you realize that Jesus was a man and when he went to the cross, he had to have faith in those same very prophecies that he would be raised up again from the dead. He was tempted not to believe just like all of us. Jesus had to endure persecution from who? Sinners. Now, who are these sinners? We're going to find out. Wait, what faith was being persecuted? Faith not in the coming Messiah, but faith that he was the Messiah and proclaiming that he was the son of righteousness. He was the one that would make man right with God. And this righteousness would come apart from the law, and that's what killed him. So who were the sinners? Who were the sinners that Jesus, that put Jesus to death. Verse 3 says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That scripture right there. Consider Jesus that was being persecuted by sinners, hostility towards sinners, endured such hostility. Why? Think about Jesus and what, everything he went through so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What he's saying is, is when you go through hard times, when you go through difficulties, when you're facing persecution, consider Jesus. Did Jesus say, God's doing this to me? Did Jesus say that God has forsaken me? No, it's the sinners that were doing it to him. Who is the Bible talking about when it says sinners here? Is it talking about immoral sinners? No, it's not talking about immoral sinners. Jesus already took care of that. Immoral sinners is who Jesus came for. He came for those people. He loved those people. And you know what? The Bible, the gospel says that immoral sinners loved Jesus. And you're thinking, I know some immoral sinners that don't love Jesus. No, they don't love religion. If they could just see Jesus in you and Jesus in his church, they would fall in love with him. See, I used to be one of those immoral sinners that realized how much Jesus loves me. You know, we sung that song, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, today. Um, and I don't like nitpicking, but there's a verse in it that says, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, Jesus, I will never let you go. I always sing that. Now that I understand the gospel, Jesus, lover, Jesus, oh, lover of my soul, Jesus, you will never let me go. Because even in those days when I let go, when I, I realize that he's, always, he's never let go of me. There's people out there that think that God has let go of them just because they let go. No, he's never left them. He's never forsaken them. He's always got, their, got them. So who is the Bible talking about when it says sinners? It's not talking about the immoral. Even though immoral sin's not good. I got, got to say that. I mean, I, I think we're all smarter than that, but religion kind of twists people's minds. 
The sinners that is referred to here are the legalists, the self-righteous, those who oppose and resist the true gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. It says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict, right, of sin. And Jesus says the Holy Spirit came to convict of sin. And then Jesus says the sin because of sin because they don't believe upon me. That's the only sin. Jesus, Jesus took care of all sin, all immoral sin. He took care of it all. There's only one thing that separates you from God. There's only one thing that causes you to miss the mark of God's perfection. Is that is what you do with Jesus Christ. And these are people that heard, they seen, they tasted, they smelled. They, all their five physical senses were being aroused by the very presence of God, of Jesus Christ incarnate, and they put him to death. They had no excuse. And then they had the scriptures. They had Moses and the prophets that proclaimed all these things that he fulfilled. The persecutors are sinners. They are sinners because they are trying to justify themselves by the flesh and by their own works and are offended at those who believe that they are justified and righteous before God by simple faith in Jesus Christ. And you still run into these people today. And boy, do they get mad. They get mad when you shine a light on their deception that somehow they are better because of what they do. They are more righteous. They are more holy because of what they do. And your simple childlike faith in Jesus just riles them up something fierce. And they, well, you can't, you can't, you can't just believe in Jesus. You got to do. And you say no, and, then, and they, they see you in your rest and your peace, and it just drives them batty. It's the same spirit of, of, of man-made religion that is rampant. The same thing that went through the Old Testament. The same thing that happened in the New, in, with Jesus, with the gospel. And the same thing that the disciples in the early church and Paul all experienced. This is who they're writing to. This is what they're writing about. We are encouraged to consider Jesus when you're going through hard times in life, when you're going through persecution, when things don't seem to be going right, we are to consider Jesus who faced opposition from such sinners. You know, and if there's things that's happened in your life because of the sin that you've done, it's not God that's doing it to you. But consider Jesus in that situation. Well, what does that mean to consider Jesus in that situation? Consider what he did, what he paid and what he has done for you and who you are, you are a new creation. That's not you anymore. Do you know why I don't wear a dress? Because I'm not a man. I'm not a man. I'm not a Because I'm not a woman. Because I'm not a woman. Right? Do you know why you shouldn't sin? Because you're not a sinner. It's that simple. The reason I get up and put slacks on every morning is because I'm a man. Now, I'm not saying that women can't wear slacks, but you know what I'm saying. You got to be careful. Getting all religious in here. <sighs> what time is it? No, okay. We are encouraged to consider Jesus who faced opposition from sinners so that we, when we face the same opposition because of our faith, it comes because of your faith. We will stand fast and endure in faith as Jesus did. The third category is you as a son being persecuted for your faith. And that's in Hebrews 4 through 12. Verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding, shedding blood in your striving against sin. Hmm. Who are the sin? What is the sin? Who are the sinners? Who are you striving against? Who's trying to shed your blood? 
We'll get to all this. And you have forgotten the exaltation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those who the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the fathers of, of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness." All the discipline for, for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands of the weak and the knees of the feeble. And we're going to get into all this. Likewise, just as the Old Testament sons did not compromise their faith when they were cut into, tortured, persecuted, and they didn't allow themselves to compromise. And just like Jesus, the Son of God, who did not compromise under persecution, but endured for his faith as the Messiah, you as a son and daughter can endure any persecution for your faith that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. See, it's important. We had to set this, we had to set this up to see these divisions. We had to see these divisions because it shows us the context of the discipline of the disciplines referred to here, which are simply God using persecutions for the gospel's sake to strengthen our faith in Him. God's not bringing the persecution; the, the gospel is bringing the persecution because you're because you're standing for the gospel. You're standing in faith for Christ. When you start standing in faith for Christ, when you start walking in the gospel, when you start walking in your your new creation realities of who you are in Christ, guess what? Persecutions are going to come. And they don't come from God, and they don't come because of something that you did, but they do come become because of something you did. It's you trying to walk as the sons and daughters of God. And in the midst of that, persecution, God is able to strengthen our faith. And what does he mean by strengthen our faith? It means it causes us to press into God and trust him more in the midst of the persecution. Now, you can be in unbelief in persecution and go back to works mentality, you deny, your, deny your faith in Christ, or whatever you want to call it. Try to, to uh, serve more in the church. Try to to read your Bible more. I mean, those things are all good, but if you're doing it trying to get something that you already are, if you're trying to do it to twist God's arm to bless you or, or all this goofy stuff that we try to do through man-made religion, it's lacking faith in Christ. So in the midst of hardships in this earth, it's not, God is not trying to, he's using the hardships in this earth to get you to depend on him more. He doesn't send the hardships. The hardships comes because you're trying to represent a kingdom. It's a kingdom that is at war. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our God. Do you see this? This is, if, if you can get the picture of this, you realize, you can see how the whole world is rocking and reeling back and forth with these two kingdoms that are at war. And thank God there's a coming day when our, our king comes home and he shows everybody once and for all that all his enemies shall be under his foot. So it's important to see these divisions. What about the sin that is mentioned in this verse? Yeah, I mean, because right when it starts talking about sin, all of a sudden we start thinking about our moral behavior, right? So what about that? Sin. Sin is mentioned twice in these passages. The first time, I guess we're not going short today, is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. 
Anybody got to get up and stretch or anything? You good? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every uh, encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is not talking about throwing off moral sin. And if you don't, God's going to discipline you. The reality is that it's not talking about moral sin at all, but the sin of unbelief that causes people to go back to the law of works-based relationship with God. Because it goes on to say, let us therefore look unto Jesus, throw off the sin of unbelief, and look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher or perfecter of our faith. You can't run a race of faith if you're entangled with the law and the works of the flesh. If you don't understand how I tied the law and the works of the flesh together, go listen to the last two messages. The reason why these scriptures are written is to encourage you not to back off from the gospel. Jesus himself went through what you're going through, yet did not compromise his faith. He is the author. He is the perfecter of our faith, and we must fix our eyes on him. So that sin there is not a moral sin. It's the sin of unbelief in what Christ has done. Verse 4 is the other part, place that sin is mentioned. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against sin. The mistake here is that most think that we are struggling against moral sin and temptation, right? Right believing will take care of that. You don't have to worry about that. Just change your thinking. It's not even talking about moral sin here. And on top of that, it's not even talking about your sin. Believe it or not, it's actually talking about the sin of other people. It's referring to their sin against you. He's talking about this cloud of witnesses. He's talking about those that were tortured, those that were sawn in half. He's talking about Jesus Christ that was, that was crucified and scourged and beaten. And he says, you, you haven't even shed any blood because of the sin that's coming against you. The sin of sinners, of unbelievers. It's talking about the sin of legalism and persecutors who persecuted the Old Testament sons and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And their sin is the sin of unbelief. You have not resisted their sin to the point of shedding your blood, he's, he's saying. He's challenging readers by saying, don't give in. Don't compromise when you come under attack for believing the gospel. Stand through. Press through. The Old Testament saints did it. The Old Testament saints didn't compromise. Jesus Christ, he stood through it. He pressed through. He didn't compromise. He stayed in faith. You should use their example and don't compromise your faith. This is what that's saying. Disciplines. What are they? And why do they come? That's the question now, right? So why do these why do these disciplines come? And what are these disciplines? And that's exactly what we're going to look at next week. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you are awesome. We thank you that you are a father that encourages your children when we face all types of calamity, when we face hardships, when we face persecutions, when we face even spiritual warfare for standing in faith in Jesus Christ. We stand. We will not compromise. We have a great cloud of witnesses that went before us. We have Jesus Christ, our ultimate example of faith in God. And Father, we thank you for the scriptures that you've given us to encourage us that we can stand strong. We can stand strong in calamities. We can stand strong in disciplines. We can stand strong in this life. 
and see you move mightily. And Father, we thank you that even to the point of death by the hands of the unbelieving, to the point of death from this fallen world, we have a blessed hope and an awesome homecoming, a great resurrection. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the kingdom that you are building here in this community through the church of Jesus Christ. And we just thank you that we're going to be walking in the fullness of God as the sons and daughters of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We just love you, we praise you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.